Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And I out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Well, Harvest, we continue our bus tour through the land of Revelation, Revelation 6. Thank you, Josh, for reading that. Let me remind us, As we dive in here, uh, we enter into God's word, uh, not ours, not mine. Um, We desire to hear what the Lord has to say, not what I want him to say. We enter knowing that uh, Revelation is a unique book of the Bible. Uh, It's genre, it is a prophetic apocalyptic letter. And therefore, in light of that, it needs some additional care uh, as we study it to understand it rightly. Also, I want to remind us that we are doing a book of Revelation study and not a systematic theology study of all of eschatology or the end times and what the Bible as a whole has to say. We're just right now in the book of Revelation. And um, the other thing I just want to remind us, we're doing this in a tour manner. We're doing this in a way where we're kind of letting it unfold. That's why I've been using kind of this terminology, we're on a bus tour together. And yeah, by the way, Doug, what is with that? You know, what's your deal with a bus tour? Well, it's really this. Um, I personally, as a pastor teacher, I am more about creating experiences and bringing people along on a journey than I am being a data dumper. And uh, I love bringing people along and creating the experience with and and you enjoying it as I enjoy it and us doing that together. It's kind of like, don't tell me the end of the movie. You know, don't ruin it for me kind of a thing. It's it's that idea of uh, uh, let me experience the surprise as well. Don't ruin that first time experience. And, And I've already mentioned to you, I am so, I can just tell you, in my preparation for this, I am so working to go through the book of Revelation like I've never gone through it before. And I mean, just like I've fresh eyes. Uh, trying to take a look at it, just letting it unfold, even for me personally, not letting all of my seminary just crouch over. I just want it to come to life again. 
and have that freshness. And so kind of this bus tour thing is the way that we are doing that together and just experiencing this together. So experience it with me. That's what I want to have happen on this. Uh, Let me just kind of set the stage. Our bus tour so far, another reminder here. Uh, We began the bus tour by having uh, some Sundays preparing for the bus tour, uh, built out of chapter one. And and you can even take a look over in chapter one there. In chapter one, we saw that John was given an assignment uh, by the Lord to write down everything that he sees and, and that he's to write it down and then give it to seven local churches. And the seven local churches that are in, uh, were in Asia Minor are in modern Turkey today. And, and so he's to write these things down, uh, provide them for it. And then he begins by writing this, but he also begins by uh, telling us that he's seen the magnified, resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. And it's like, oh my, um, seated high. And uh, lift it up. And in that, as he lays that out, um, he then, we then moved into chapters two and three and kind of took a one Sunday country drive through uh, past seven local churches. And uh, each of those, we saw that the resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ had something to say to each of those seven local churches. And, and most of them uh, had some words of encouragement. Most of them also uh, had some words of needed change that they need to make. And great reminder, there is no perfect local church. And every local church is to be growing and changing because every local church should be filled with people that are growing and changing in all of that. And so we took that tour and then we came to our first bus stop. It was in chapter four. Uh, And what a doozy of a stop it was. We literally in chapter four are in the throne room of heaven Uh, We there on that first stop, uh, we got a glimpse of the glory of the Father. I don't know if you remember that, but chapter four, uh, John describes this like carnelian and and, and jasper light shooting out from the throne. And and then there's this emerald rainbow that's encircling the throne and there's lightning and thunder rumbling out from the throne and there's these four living creatures, these four living ones that are there before the throne and they are nonstop declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Every moment of every day, they have new things to declare his glory. I've said this is, they're not bored doing this. It's like something new is always happening to declare the glory and the majesty of the Lord. And there they are doing. And then every so often they kind of break into this unique declaration of the Father. And, and we saw that the 24 presbyteros that are also sitting on thrones around the throne and around the four living ones, when the, the, the four living ones, when they do this, they go to their knees and they take their Stephanus crowns, their victory crowns, and they lay it before the Father. And there's just this magnificent, sight of all glory and majesty laid before the Father, the one who sits on the throne. And then last Sunday we were in chapter five and kind of the whole scene shifts. You remember if you look at verse one, it's kind of like the whole scene shifts to where it's all about the Father and then it like narrows in and then there's a scroll that's kind of resting in the Father's right hand that's there. And all eyes are on the scroll and and in all of that scroll, uh, uh, they, we are taken on this like mental amazing race tour. Who's, who's worthy to open uh, this scroll? Who's worthy to take it and then to open it and read it? And we find that no one, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, nobody is worthy to take and to open and read it. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, one tells John, oh... Don't weep, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb. And between the throne comes the lamb. And he steps out, the one that was slain, the redeeming one, God in the flesh, now coming from the throne. What an amazing picture. And then after that, he comes and all of a sudden the four living creatures and the 24 presbyteros break into this doxology, into this new song, verse nine, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it and to put into effect what's in the scroll. 
And then after that, there's this, this doxology enlarges and it says the innumerable angels, myriads and myriads, countless angels, they then enter into this whole thing. All the focus is now on the lamb, the lion-like lamb one. And, and there they are giving him glory and praise. And then on top of that, the entire universe comes in and gives this doxology at the end of verse five to both the lamb and the father. Super cool. And now we're in chapter six. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb, is now about to roar. As your tour guide, I need to let you know that uh, we're coming into some hard and heavy terrain. And in fact, we're going to be driving through this hard and heavy terrain for a good bit. Um, in fact, from chapter 6 through 19 is hard and heavy terrain. And uh, buckle up. Uh, we got 14 chapters to go. I just need to let you know, 14 chapters in uh, some pretty heavy, hard stuff. Uh, do know that uh, eventually it's all really, really exciting stuff. It's really exciting stuff. The awesome news is coming. Uh, but we're going to be going through some hard and heavy news. And um, I'd say it this way. Some tour guides at this point going into the hard and heavy news, they kind of break into this, I might almost call it this sick glee. This kind of almost this gleeful smile on their face telling about all this judgment that is going to be unleashed. I just want for you to know, no, not this tour guide. Um, this is a time over these coming weeks and in these chapters where uh, I promise you uh, we will be pressed and pushed in trying to wrap our heads around our great God. And uh, I'm asking you just to sit for a while and to sit in this and to wrestle this through. This isn't the time to cheer, if you will, in a certain aspect. Um, everything from chapters nine through, from chapter six through 19 has to come back to chapters four and five, it must. Because if you do not bring uh, chapter six through 19 back to chapters four and five, you may possibly walk away with an idea that the Lord is uh, unfair or cruel or ungracious. Maybe that he is a warlord that doesn't fit the character of who the Lord really is. It all has to come back to chapters four and five. Instead, what really comes out of chapter 6 and 19 is in the hard and heavy terrain. I really believe what we end up seeing is, is a God that is good, and loving, and a God that is merciful, and long-suffering, and majestic. The perfect one will right all the wrongs. And he will do it perfectly. You know, we love wrongs being righted. Is that righted even a word? We love wrongs being made right. Um, a couple examples. Sweet Belle, helping the beast learn how to love. Was that too sissy? Okay, let's go some more man out. Maximus Decimus Meridius. We love the gladiator stopping the wicked emperor Commodus. I mean, he needed to be stopped. He did. And ultimately, we cheer that on, not in that he was taken down necessarily, but that right conquered wrong. Also, uh, I love it when Jason Bourne exposes the treadstone mess, right? I mean, it, it needed to be done. I, I, and Batman, oh my, when Batman brings the unrelenting terror of the Joker to justice, we don't get a thrill out of the fact that the Joker died, but we do know that wrong needs to be made right. And we are thrilled in that truth. We love the fact of wrong being made right, but friends, we're not talking about fairy tales, we're not talking about movies, and we're not talking about comic strip characters. 
we were talking about reality. And we were talking about life and eternity. Scott Sauls writes this. If there is no ultimate accounting for evil, what do we say to the Jews about Hitler? What do we say to little girls who have been sold into the sex trade by greedy, oppressive scoundrels? What do we say to the boy who is abused by his father or the unassuming widow who is robbed? It is too simple to merely say that our God is a God of love and nothing else. If God decided to put his gavel aside once for all, don't we see that this would create many more problems that it would solve? He goes on, if a judging God did not exist, then we would be living in a world of Darwinian chaos in which the strong eat the weak and only the powerful survive. He says, if there is no judgment, there is no hope. This is a hard truth that must be delivered truthfully, he says. And I love this, he finishes it in this way. In a spirit of gentleness, respect, and love-saturated tears. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be that and to do that. I pray, Lord, that we would come to see you as you really are, more of you. Lord, I pray that we would come to know more of who you are. And God, I would pray that we would respond in light of who you are. God, we far too often humanize you. I pray we would see you as you are. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the scroll has been taken from the Father's right hand by the lion-like lamb, the lion that is the lamb, the lamb that is the lion. And now in chapter six, we begin and we see the seals are beginning to be broken. By the way, before we enter into chapter six, how many seals are on the scroll? Seven. And in chapter six, as you look there, how many of the seals in chapter six are opened? Six. That means that there's one seal left. Um, just keep that in mind. Uh, uh, we'll see that later in the text on another Sunday. Here we go, chapter six. Uh, taking a big picture at the chapter, I just want for you to know there's a pretty simple format to what's happening here. Uh, the first part of that is the lion-like lamb opens a seal, and we kind of see it a seal at a time here. It says, look at verse one. Uh, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And then you go to verse three, and it says, when he opened, and then verse five, and then verse seven, then verse nine, verse 12. It's, it's he is opening each one of these seals. Uh, Jesus Christ, the risen, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb, uh, he is the one that is opening each of these these seals. And, and when each of these seals are opened, what then happens is, is that uh, some action takes place. Some things happen on earth with each seal. It's, it's kind of like pop, the seal is broken, and then poof, this action begins to take place. By the way, what's really interesting, I think, in this is, is you know, I would think from last Sunday, this scroll is there, and then you open that it would be red. Actually, we don't see the scroll red. Uh, it's like a 3D book. It's kind of like the seal is broken and then poof, all this, this imagery jumps off the page for us and really the whole scroll is uh, the seals and the scroll are the rest of the book of Revelation in so many ways. But we're gonna see this like apocalyptic imagery pop off. I know this, there isn't gonna be a horse galloping around the planet and these things happening. That is imagery, but yet within it, we have to see the truth of what is taking place in all of this. The first four seals, by the way, uh, they're called in other uh, areas of the Bible in Zechariah 1, Zechariah 6, Ezekiel 14, Leviticus uh, 26. They're called the four horsemen. And with each of these, we'll see this, one of the living uh, ones, the beast, they go, come, and then there's a horse and a rider. Seals five and six, there is no horse and rider. Uh, let's dig in. We're actually gonna go through this pretty fast. 
I guess that's a term that everybody defines differently. I might define it differently than you. Here we go. Verse one, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder. By the way, oftentimes that's uh, Old Testament, that voice like thunder carries this idea of God delivering judgment uh, upon. And this voice like thunder says, come! And I looked and behold, a what color horse? A white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Wow. Well, let's sit here on this first seal. I'm going to kind of cut to the chase of it because in a little, little ways, to understand, I think, some of the first seal, you, you have to go to some other text of Scripture, kind of in a more uh, broad systematic theology approach to it. And I said, we're not really doing that, but I'm going to kind of bring it in and summarize it up here pretty simply. It's like the first seal, pop, it crack, it's broken. And then all of a sudden, one of the four of the living ones says, Come! Uh, the term in the Greek, it's an imperative of invitation is the form of the, of, of the word that's used there. It means imperative. It's a command. It's a, it's a very strong statement. Come! That's why there's an exclamation point, if you will, there. And then it's an invitation. So it's like, it's really cool here because the Lord uh, opens, cracks the seal, but one of these four is involved in this. In other words, when he says come, it's like he's declaring it's being put into action action kind of a thing. Uh, as a result of the crack and the gum, uh, this is now happening. And it's like thunder, this judgment wrath is coming. It's a white horse and its rider is give, was given a, 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 has a bow and was given a crown. It's a Stephanus crown. It's a victory crown. And, and it comes out conquering and to conquer, conquering in order to conquer. Oh, what's being said here? Uh, by the way, I just want to point out, I do think it actually is important in it that he has a bow but no arrows. Um, I think there's implications here. I'm not trying to read into the text too far, but if you take the whole of this through other books, I think it has some meaning. You also have to take this to Mark 13 and Matthew 24. Both of those are the Olivet Discourse. And Mark 13, 6 carries out this idea in the Olivet Discourse that there will be peace that is a false peace. Deception will be happening here. And that's why I come back to the bow without arrows. I mean, think about it. You can't do war without arrows. I mean, it's like giving a, being given a gun and no bullets. I mean, what do you do? Whack them over the head? I mean, it doesn't really do a whole lot of good to you. You look like you have power, uh, but really it's kind of a false power. And this carrying out this idea of uh, conquering by deception, I don't think this is war, but there's a counterfeit false peace that is being allowed to happen on the face of the earth. It feels like peace, it smells like peace, it looks like peace, uh, but it's not real peace. It's temporary. Doug, who is this? When is this gonna happen and, and how will this unfold? Well, as your tour guide, uh, uh, that's not a discussion I'm gonna have. And why, it's because I'm a weenie? Um, well, maybe, but it's really because it's not necessary right now. We're letting this unfold. And in some ways, it's just know this. Grand deception is going to be taking place in a feeling of peace, but there won't be. By the way, part of the reason I'm not unleashing out on who and when and what and one, I, I don't really know. But the other is Mark 13. Remember when the disciples are walking out of the temple and they turn back and they look and they comment to Jesus, look at the temple. It is gorgeous. It's like gleaming in the sunlight. And back in that day, it's actually kind of white stone and it's just amazing. And, and they make this comment to Jesus and Jesus just blows their whole verbal, you know, thrill party for a moment by Jesus says, no, no, guys, by the way, the whole thing's coming down. And they're like, What? And then over on the Mount of Olives, they begin to have this conversation with Jesus like, when? Who? How's that going to happen? That's what we do, isn't it? I just want to know the rest of the story. And I want to know exactly how it unfolds. 
But Jesus in that whole thing, as they were asking that, Jesus basically says this, hey guys, it's none of your business. You're missing the whole focus of what's really going on here. In fact, he makes a very interesting statement in Mark 13, 32. Jesus says to them, not even the son knows, only the father. Listen, there are some things we just need to leave in the father's hands. I don't know who this is. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do know this. Massive God-allowed deception is going to conquer with false peace for a period of time. I think like we've never seen before. By the way, part of what I come out of this is seal number two. Let's go there. Seal number two. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say what? That was pretty wimpy. Uh, what did he say? Come. And out came another horse, a bright red horse. And its rider, interesting, was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Pop, crack, seal number two. One of the living ones says, come, it's an invitation, imperative of invitation. It's like calling this into place and out of the scroll like this 3D book comes this bright red horse with a rider and it was given a great sword and it was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. Isn't it interesting? It takes peace from the earth. I think that fits right following after seal number one this false peace that's on the earth. By the way, here in seal number two, it carries the idea of human taking human. God has used other humans in the past to bring judgment and God will again. It also just shows this whole reality, almost this sense that God is like pulling back his general grace and man's depravity is really coming more to its full fruition. By the way, you do know that all people on the earth, whether they love the Lord or despise the Lord, experience the general grace of God. I mean, the fact that our planet is held within the perfect place, that we don't get too hot or too cold. I mean, the fact that even the Lord is restraining depraved man with a sin-cursed world from literally unleashing on ourselves. But there will become a time to where that will be pulled back. And man's depravity will be coming more and more to its full fruition. And by the way, it's not just killing. It's the idea of slaughter. And there will be civil unrest and war. Like nothing that has been seen, I believe, in past at all. No one will be safe. Seal number three. When he opened the third seal, I I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, uh, what color horse? A black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat. I want to read this with a British accent (laughs) for some reason. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What in the world is going on here? It's really not that hard to see what's taking place here. So this black horse comes out. And he's holding a scale. It's not a digital scale like today. It's an old scale where, you know, it's kind of got the two sides or weights here to balance it out. And, And then all of a sudden you have this reference into this conversation about food going on here. War, seal number two, comes out of false peace, seal number one. And famine comes out of war. Food is in short supply. It's being weighed out. And what is happening here is this statement, while it doesn't necessarily make too much sense about the wheat and the barley and the oil and the wine, doesn't make too much sense to us nowadays. In 95 AD, when you were reading that, it made perfect sense, and here's why. 
Because when they read that, they knew that the typical man would have a quart of wheat was the food that a a man would eat. Now, that was kind of middle class and on up. If you were poor, barley was less expensive, uh, less good for you, but yet barley was there. So think about it. If, If in that day, a denarius was a pay for a day, So you work for a day and and you earn that pay for a day and that's just enough money to buy for you one day's amount of food, food only, no mortgage, no clothes, no nothing else, just food. Now, now, if you had a family here, is kind of the illustration, you couldn't buy wheat for your entire family with your day's work. You would have to buy barley because that was a less expensive one. Then you could feed your family of three in the illustration here for that day. Back in that day, what's going on here is the comparison. This is 10 to 15 times the cost in the day that this was written. you imagine? All of a sudden, your grocery bill multiplies by 10 to 15 times what it is? Especially if you have teen boys, you're in trouble. But that's the illustration here that's going on. All this food becomes in short supply and people are just working just to eat and nothing else. What's the deal with the oil and the wine thing? Do not harm that. Well, there's two views on that. I'm not really sure which one it is, or maybe it's both. Uh, the views on that is, is that uh, the more well-to-do, the middle class and on up, they were usually the ones, the ones that had some stock of oil and olive oil and wine, and, and the poor didn't necessarily have that. So is, is one view is that maybe this is referring to, in other words, at this point in time, uh, the rich aren't quite getting as hit as hard. Another view on that is, is, it also makes sense, is back in the day when they would come to war, one of the things that the soldiers were taught was, is you do not take out the olive trees and you do not take out the grapevines. Because if you take those out and then we conquer over, it takes years for those things to come back. That is not something like corn you plant and you've got it here a little bit later. It takes years and years. Exactly what that's talking about, I'm not sure, but we have this idea of do not harm the oil and the wine, but yet inflation and famine is beginning to have an impact here. We've seen false peace, war, famine, and now number four, death. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I look and looked and behold a pale horse. The original language has this idea pale. It's like yellow green. You know, like now if a plant dies and it starts turning like that yellow green, it's like deathly, it's pale. That's the idea here. This horse comes out that's pale and its rider's name, first time we have a name, if you will, but it's describing this and its rider's name was death. And also Hades followed him. And they were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Pop, crack, come! And the fourth living one uh, declares the come and then this pale horse and its rider who is death and Hades following by given authority over a quarter of the earth. Uh, you look at these, these are really natural disasters that are going on. There are things that come out of war and famine. What comes out of war and famine? Death and more famine. And also pestilence and animals who are eating humans to survive. And then this Hades thing following. Uh, one commentator says, it's, Hades thing, is, it's like a street sweeper behind this rider that's cleaning up debris of the fallen and imprisoning them in the shadowy world of Hades. Whew. This is dark stuff. And friends, here in America, we don't have the foggiest idea about this stuff. but it's coming our way. It says here, given authority over a quarter of the world's population. Well, today we have uh, seven and a quarter billion people on the earth as stats show just under that. A quarter of that is 1.8 billion people. Whew. 
That's the entire continent of Africa and all of the United States, just to try and put it in some kind of context, wiped out. As you can tell, I do think there is a future aspect to this. I don't think this is describing sometime between the first uh, coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ because I'm just going to say we have never seen anything like this ever in history. Never. We've not seen anything like this. Not during World War I, not during World War II. Pause here and just uh, refer back to uh, Mounts and his commentary. He said this, as, as this text was being read and heard by the people of the second lo- seven local churches, instead of debating the probable significance of each horse, they would have recoiled in terror as war, bloodshed, famine, and death ran across their mind. Hey, don't go to the when and the how. Grab the big picture. And the big picture is the lion like lamb is roaring. And this is no game. This is no fairy tale. This is no comic strip. When he opened the fifth seal, verse 9, I saw under the altar. The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. By the way, I don't have time, but that is the coolest statement that a martyr could make. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Pop, crack, seal number five. There's no uh, living one declaration. There's no horse, there's no rider. There's just John saying, I saw, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. I'm seeing martyrs here. I'm not gonna go into the details of, of, of what it is. I don't think we need to here. I just, you can see it laid out on the page. It's really interesting here. These martyrs are making a prayer of supplication. This is the only prayer of supplication in the whole book of Revelation here. By the way, it's not a cry out for personal revenge. It's not a cry out for personal vengeance here. This is a cry out for divine justice. It's like when you read the Psalms and the psalmist makes this declaration, Lord, I pray this, I'm feeling this right now, and yet ultimately I'm leaving it in your hands. Because friends, this isn't about our honor. This is about the Lord's honor. And by the way, why does a martyr become martyred? For the Lord's honor. And that's what's happening here. Also, I'll just note, uh, this is a reminder that, the redeemed in, that being redeemed in Christ does not mean that you are removed from the consequences of a sin-cursed world. Faithfulness to the Lord requires sacrifice. Also, every martyr in Christ matters. If you go through this text, you get this idea that the Lord is counting them. And like there's a number. And every one of them is known. Everyone. Even the 14s in Iraq last year who were asked to convert to Islam or have your heads cut off. No, no, no. We follow Yeshua. And their heads were cut off. Four more were added. How cool is that? The Lord knows everyone. I just have to, I can't leave this seal number five without asking this question. Would you be willing, would I be willing to be martyred for Christ? Would I? Don't answer that quickly. Would you? You know, that question 10 or 20 or 30 years ago was very theoretical. It's becoming less theoretical here. I ask you, follower of Christ, 
What would you have said had you been in the shoes of those teens? Seal number six. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. That's very, very dark. And the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. By the way, if, if earlier, if the olives and the wine mean that it was kind of somewhere held a little bit way, away from the wrath, oh, everybody's now. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Pop, seal number six. John looks and there's this great earthquake and the sun goes black and a full moon turns red like blood. The stars, if you will, are falling to earth. I don't know how this unfolds. I don't know the details of what it means. Well, but we got blood moons all over the place here right now going on. And listen, I just know this. Seal number six is talking about some cataclysmic events of cosmic proportions. And it's the idea here that's even talking about like the heavens are being rolled up. By the way, the creator that created, it's kind of like he's rolling it up. The Old Testament talks about the darkening of the sun. The Old Testament talks about the blood moon in association with judgment. And I'll just say, I think you need to take all this and, and run it through the Olivet Discourse. Mark 13, Matthew 24. We have seven people groups here that are given in verse 15. All of them hide. All of them cry out. Terror is the great equalizer. By the way, if I, I don't know if I've watched a horror movie in a long time. It's not my thing, but I remember when I was like a teenager, you know, and you'd get a whole bunch of people together and watch a horror movie, you know, and you kind of had the jocks, and then you had the populars, and then you had this, and you had that. You watch a horror movie, everyone's in the same place. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, what you own, how good looking you are, how popular, it doesn't matter. Terror is the great equalizer. And that's what's happening here in this whole situation. And I'll note this note this there is no repentance. You got to look at the, what it's saying here closely. Verse 16, look at the truths that is coming out, the theology that is coming out, yet lacking repentance. Fallen as hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. They know where this is coming from. And it all even says not only from the father, but from the wrath of the lamb. They know that this is the Godhead bringing judgment. They know that. And it even says they're stating for the great day of their wrath, their own wrath has come. And yet no repentance. Friends, this just shows you how hard a heart can be. And ultimately, the Lord wishes that none would perish. Even in this happening, the Lord would wish that in his heaviest and hardest of rightly laying out perfect judgment and in this whole situation, he wishes that they would repent. The Lord wishes that none would not be redeemed. And yet it's just so. Warren Wearsby says, um, if men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. Mark 13, eight says, um, these are the beginnings of the birth pains. Uh, ladies who've had kids, you get that better than the others of us. 
But I've seen it. And it's, yeah, it's hard. I just want to remember us, remind us that uh, for centuries and centuries, for centuries and centuries and centuries, the Lamb has been pouring out His grace. Fully available, fully free. But time is expiring. Galatians 6 3. Hmm. This is heavy. The Lord says, My spirit will not contend with man forever. So what do we do with this? Four things I'm going to suggest. Four possibilities. Number one, all of you start with an S. Us pastors can get weird with that stuff. Number one, you can stone it. In other words, this is ridiculous. (laughs) This is just fairy tale talk. I just reject it. You can do that. You can do that. I would just call you to consider rethinking that, though. Another one is you can substitute it. In other words, this really isn't about what it sounds like it's about. This is all just kind of simply flowery talk and symbols. And and, and I know that God is love and God's love substitutes the idea of God's judgment. The two cannot go together. Wait a second. How can we love the fact that wrong is righted and yet we can't allow a perfect God to perfectly right wrong? Here's what's happening. We're shoving him off the throne seat and we're setting our little keister there and we're ruling. We can't do that. And we substitute who it is. We allow one trait of the Lord to trump his other traits. And the fact is, is that he is a God of love and absolute grace, and yet he is a God that is holy and righteous and must make wrong right. Don't substitute it. You can stone it, you can substitute it, third it, you can shift it. Kind of get caught in all the discussions and the debates about it. You know, to seal number one, you know, on the white horse, you know, I'm thinking of Revelation 19. Who is that? Is that Christ? Is that that the Antichrist? Is that, you know, the gospel? Is that Apollos the archer? Uh, You know, there's all kinds of things. Um, There's a right time to have those conversations. But it can also shift the whole focus off onto some other stuff. You know, who specifically are the martyrs in seal number five? By the way, are believers here during this time or not? Hey, let me just say this. The Lord is going to bring judgment. And everybody's ears should perk up. Whether there or not. We can shift it. Or fourth, here's what I'm going to propose. We sit in it. We just sit in this. Eventually here, we're going to get to chapter 8. Beginning of chapter 8 is the seventh seal. And before the seventh seal is opened, the entire heavens go silent. I'm just going to ask that we go silent, if you will. And you take this week to think about this because, friends, I am going to tell you, all of your struggles, all of your problems... They all matter, but in light of this, they get smaller and smaller. The Lord is good. The Lord is loving. The Lord is majestic. The Lord is long-suffering. So here's what we're going to do going to uh, 
have here in just a moment here, have a, a song played from a Carrie Job concert. Um, it's a new song. It's called Look Upon the Lord. And I just want for us to sit. In this song here, it talks about uh, stand, look upon the Lord, stand in the awe of his beauty. He is seated high, he is holy. He's good, his mercy endures. He is near, he is with us. Let's just take all this and sit. Josh is going to read a couple passages of scripture and then we'll be done. Let's sit and watch and think. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. The Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness.
leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. so in this time of pause I uh, I acknowledge your grandness your majesty your holiness You do not lie, you do not deceive, you do not manipulate. Lord, we so often humanize you. We make you to be like us. We compare you to leaders in our world. But you are holy, you are separate, you are unlike. You are not just separate, you are separate, separate, separate. And Lord, we make you way too small. We, I think that the things going on in my life are too big for you to really handle. That you aren't sovereign enough. That you don't know. Lord, that's foolish thinking. You know every nanosecond of history and it is all going somewhere. So Lord, I pray on this Memorial Weekend that we would spend more time in memory of you and what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do God, I would pray this week that we would just sit here in this place and allow you to shake us up 
stir us up and move us forward. You are the lamb. You are the lion. And we joyfully lay ourselves before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, Harvest. Go knowing that you are loved.